The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. We have been in pursuit of the Gospel of John. It's uh, it's been a it's been a joy to walk through this passage uh, for, uh, this week. Uh, it's been an absolute. Um, challenge and so insightful to go through the gospel of John. Here we are uh, at the end of uh, chapter four, and there's been such rich application. Uh, we know that the first chapter, first 18 verses is the prologue. And as I had mentioned back then, that this was, uh, this was basically the, uh, the big idea of the entire gospel was, was outlined in these first 18 verses that, uh, that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You know, that, 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 that Christ himself came, took on skin, uh, covered himself in humanity, drank down to the dreads, the, the dross of humanity, the sin, the selfishness, the very thing that was separating us from the Father, and, uh, and he did the reconciling work. He did what only he could do in order to bring us back in relationship uh, with the Father, with uh, with the Son, with the Spirit. So um, grab chapter 4 with me. Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 39. I'm going to do a little bit of a quick review from last week, um, just so that, uh, because it's referenced in the passage we're looking at this week. Um, man, we have such a tendency to try to put God in a category or in a box. We have a tendency to try to, though we're made in his image and likeness, as it says in Genesis 1.27, we have a tendency to want to form or make or put him or make him in the image that we're, con, you know, that we're comfortable with. Um, and, uh, and Jesus is at odds with this. Jesus will not, be, uh, will not be put in a box, will not be seen, or he will not accept Others wanting him to be something that he isn't. He is, uh, and and neither do we, do we? Have you ever been in a in a situation where where others uh, um, want you to be something that you're not, and they treat you in that manner? Or I know uh, you hear often stars talk about like you know, or people that have a lot of money. They don't they don't know who their real friends are because they don't they they don't really know their motives. Well, Jesus has an advantage on that in that regard. Is that he can see our hearts. He knows what's in our hearts. And then he speaks to that reality. He speaks to that connotation, that, that expression of how we see him and, uh, and really calls us to um, a sober uh, moment, to a, to a truthful place. Uh, this is what God does for us in Christ. So let's bow our heads and, uh, and ask for his help Holy Spirit, this is your work to be done. May I be forgotten and you never be forgotten ever that, uh, Lord Jesus, you would be remembered. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Father, would you do this glorious work to write your word upon our hearts? Oh, man, I submit myself to you as a frail vessel that, that passionately desires to see you do this glorious work of transforming us into your image and likeness. We know that's done by your spirit through your word. And so would you, would, you, would, you, would you plant your word in our hearts? 
so that it might produce fruit, that we might be an honoring vessel for your glory. Would you have your way in this moment? Holy Spirit, would you speak to us and that you would find in us a hunger and thirst for righteousness, a hunger and thirst for for your truth and your word and your will and your way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we pick up chapter 4, starting verse 39. Now, this is a little of an overlap from last week. Last week, we looked at uh, the response that, uh, that Sakar, this, uh, this town in Samaria, had to the woman uh, that Jesus encountered at the well that was transformed by his pursuit and his love for her and his, uh, him revealing himself to her. Uh, she goes back and says, let me, you know, she talks about uh, a man that told her everything that he, uh, that she had ever done. And, uh, and by her witness, by uh, the witness of this woman, uh, many came out and Jesus referred to them as they were coming out as, as a field that was white to harvest to his disciples and told them that, that he had food that they knew nothing about to do with the will of the heavenly father, which was to be harvesters. And that, uh, you know, we, we talked about that Jesus feasted on the harvest um, and, uh, and that he calls us to that as well. Um, and then it's interesting at the, at the latter part of that text, we see that, uh, that these uh, Samaritans um, now say, look, initially we, uh, we came, we believed because of your testimony, but now we believe because of the words that he has taught us. Well, in that passage, you know, Jesus is asked by them not to stay and teach, but to just stay with them. They wanted him. They wanted his presence. They wanted him. And uh, and so he uh, he agrees to stay for two days. Uh, So listen to what the text says, and then we'll move into 43, which is our passage through 54 for this morning. It says many Samaritans from that town, the town was Sakar, uh, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And I want to point out for the benefit of our passage this morning, it wasn't because of a sign. It's interesting. It wasn't because of a sign. It was because of her testimony. Um, and interesting, Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 8 tells us that you will be clothed with power from on high in order to be my witnesses. Um, Let's also remember, for the benefit of uh, going forward, that uh, there is no testimony without a test, right? So testing is, uh, is, is good. You ever heard that? Probably not. <laughs> you know, testing uh, is, is a great thing. Uh, goldsmith, uh, silversmiths would say that, um, that, that, that silver or gold is tested when it's... Uh, and what do they use to test or to refine these precious metals? right? Um, you know, later on, Peter talks about, do not be surprised by the fiery trials that you are going through as if something surprising, right? Or something strange, I believe it says, is happening to you. Uh, God, God will put us through these moments of testing in order to, like, wh- what is he doing in that moment? We're going to talk about that. What is he up to? Why is he doing these moments of testing? What is his heart? What's his intention? Because those, those moments, can they be painful? Can they be hard? Um, yes, without, without exception. So when the Samaritans came to him, uh, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed, and it isn't interesting what, why they believed, because of the 
the Word, because of His Word, because of Him. I mean, John, the whole gospel kicks off that He is this Word now that was from the beginning, you know, that He is God. He was with God, but He is God. Personified, Jesus is the Word, you know, the very author of creation, the one that sustains all things by His power, Colossians 1 says. And so it says, many more believed because of his word. So we know that his word, we're told in his word that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the message or the word of Christ, right? So like we know that, that his word has the powerful and effective work of, of drawing out faith, uh, belief in, uh, in not what he does, but who he is. And, and that's critical that we understand it. So verse 42 says, They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves firsthand, and we know, like we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. I point out again, no signs were done except the glorious transforming work of a heart that went back immediately into a context that she was avoiding and she declares the, the reality of the work that Christ had done in her life. She was a witness and that witness had benefit and it drew people to Jesus. And then as, he heard, as they heard his word, they believed for themselves and were transformed by his power, his presence, his word, his, his love. Okay, John 4, we continue for today, and I'm going to read through this passage. And guys, um, I want to tell you up front that as I read this initially, I'm like, man, I, I, I don't know where, where we can go with this. And, and really, I've got this thing stirring in my heart from my quiet time uh, this week that I would really love to, to share, Lord. And so would you please clarify, because this is what I would love to preach on, and, uh, and, but, but this is where we are in the text. And, and, and I really, you know, I, I want to understand what it is that you're wanting to, to say here. And man, as I dove into this and as the Lord unpacked this for me, I'm like, and would you believe that they married? That what God was doing in my quiet time, which seems like totally over here, was just perfectly in line. And I know many of you are going, yeah, of course. I mean, that's, it's God. You know, he's good. <laughs> so, okay. So John 4, 43 to 54. Uh, this is the tail end of chapter 4. Uh, man, this is so rich. It's so confusing. It's so awesome. It's so weird. It's, a, it's an incredible passage that has... Inc- Guys, let me promise you this. If you sit and you listen and you hear and you have a heart to respond in faithfulness and obedience to what the Spirit's going to do, you are going to be crazy challenged this morning. I don't think there's a person in the world that won't be challenged, if they are a follower of Christ, that won't be challenged by what is being spoken of here in this passage. So get ready to be a little unsettled, a little excited, a little challenged, a little confronted, a little confused, and a little convicted. Okay, so you got that? <laughs> so so this, is, this is how, I mean, this is so good. All right, so it says this, John chapter 4, 43 to 54, it says, after the two days, after the two days, which two days is that? Two days in Samaria, right? They asked him to stay, he stayed. They didn't ask him to stay for what he, he could give them. He, they just wanted him, uh, and he stayed. Um, but after two days, he departed for Galilee. Now, it's important. Uh, I'll wait to unpack this later. I've got to read through this whole thing. Okay, so um, by the way, I'll just say this. That's a 60-mile journey, okay, on foot 
We forget that he, when he goes, oh, and he went to Galilee, <laughs> 80 miles. Like, like this is now, now he's in Samaria going to Galilee. We know where he goes. This is about a 60-mile journey, and he goes right through Nazareth to get to Cana, which is 10 miles north of his hometown. And by the way, Nazareth is on this cleft. It's kind of like I've said this before. It's kind of Grand Central Station of Palestine. In order to get where you're going, you go through Nazareth. Isn't that interesting? I am the way. I am the gate. You know, Jesus was... That's just awesome. So um, after two days, he departed for Galilee. And then it goes on, verse, verse 44. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. What? Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast... Hmm. For they too had gone to the feast. Verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down to Capernaum and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see the signs and wonders, you will not believe. Mm. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Verse 53, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he, and he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judah or Judea to Galilee. All right, let's break this down. Verse 43, I hope you have your Bibles open. I hope you're kind of studying along here. I hope you're being a disciple, which is a learner, a student. And I hope you've got a notebook open and you're ready to make some notes because application is critical and it's unique to you because that's what the Holy Spirit will do as we read his word is he's going to pinpoint in your life what it is he's up to at this very moment. And so verse 43 to 44 goes, goes like this. And after two days, we, we talked about those were two days in Samaria that he had He's a man of his word, right? He said he'd be there for two days. He was there for two days. Uh, he departed for Galilee. All right, I mentioned earlier, this would have uh, been about a 60-mile track, depending on what part of Cana uh, he was going to. Uh, and he would have passed 10 miles earlier than his destination. He would have passed through his own hometown. That's important because verse 44 makes a statement, right? It says, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Okay, so I'm going home for they don't like me or honor me there. I, I don't know about you, but if I know that there's a people, a place, uh, that there's folks that don't like me or honor me, um, I'm in a little bit of an avoidance mode. I don't know. I, you? Uh, maybe that's my per Jesus is going there knowing that. And then we have to look at the bigger picture. Um, 
<laughs> Jesus tells parables about the fact that the Father has sent, and I'll just break down the parable, the Father has sent prophets throughout Israel's history in order to receive a harvest as the, 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 the parables about a vineyard, and that, that he gives it to them, and he comes back as a lisi or a lisor to get his a portion of the harvest. And when, when he sends his servants, talking about the prophets over the history of Israel, they, they either they, they, they treat him, them extremely poorly or they kill him. And then he says, well, I'll, I'll send my son. Surely they will honor him. Surely they, will, you know, they won't do these things to him, um, for he is the heir. But for that very reason, in the parable, they kill him thinking that this is somehow going to benefit them. You know, so the bigger picture here I ask is, did Jesus know before he came seeking to save the lost, which is all of us, every single, you know, he, he came to die for the, for the sins of humanity. Like, did he know that he would be dishonored? Did he know that? And guys, did he come anyway? And it wasn't, there wasn't hesitation in his coming. It was a pursuit of our hearts and souls. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scoring its shame. Like, he, he raced in obedience to the Father. That's clear. And, and in his race, the race marked out for him, he raced in accordance to the Father's will and his timing and purpose. But you know what he was after the whole time? I have come that they may have life and life to the full. Man, when we talk, the title of the sermon is Signs of Life. Man, you know, when we talk in an earthly context, when we talk about signs of life, you know, maybe we look at creation, we see a little flower pop up or we see a little plant or if there's a, if there's a drought and then there's rain and there's a, something, you know, some plant that pops up or if there's fruit on a tree, we would say signs of life. Or for, you know, when it talks about people, like if we saw a hot mar- heart monitor and we saw the blip piece going, you know, we'd say, ooh, that's a sign of life. My question this morning is, what is the sign of spiritual life? What would, what would God say is the signs of life? Right? Who is life? Jesus said, I am the way. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I, he was defining the statement made to, to, to Moses at the burning bush. I am. Let me fill in the blanks for you. Let me tell you what that looks like. Because Jesus came, he says, Philip, when you see me, you've seen the Father. Right? He is the exact imprint, Hebrews 1 says, of the Father. Right? So Jesus is the sign of life. Right? And the signs in us that, that there's life is the presence of Christ or his spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are the signs of life. Right? And... And this is what Jesus is looking for in hearts, right? I mean, because if a heart beats, that's great, but that's, that's going to end someday. He says, I've come that they may have life. And it was talking about eternal life, eternal life. So in this case, he says, I'm going home for they don't like me or honor me. Man, we have to understand that Jesus came from our home to give us his home. Right? And he raced into a context that he knew he would be dis- disrespected in. It wasn't a surprise that humanity treated him the way that we did. You killed the author of life, Peter said to the crowd. Listen to John chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. 
It says, he was in the world. I, I told you that this was part of the prologue that really kind of unpacked the entire book of John or the, the letter, the gospel. He says this in, in verses 10 to 12 through 12. He says, he, speaking of Jesus, was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Verse 11, and here's where it comes into clear view. Verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he, Jesus, gave the right to become children of God. See, unlike the Samaritans, I I am not expecting for my people to honor me, Jesus is saying. I am entering into the rejection. He knew before he came that this would be his lot. And again, he came anyway. So the, the question that is that comes to us is this, how about you? Like, what do we expect that the gospel, as we shine a light, as, we be, as we're witnesses, what, do we, what kind of response are we expecting? Do we expect to be honored? Do we expect to be celebrated and liked? This, if it's, if it's authentic, the chances are no. Right? Because we can... We can uh, we can bring a, a, a very candy-coated religious experience to people that itching ears will celebrate. It's your best life now, folks. Right? We can, we can do that, and people will flock to that because they like the music and they like, the, they like what's being said. But what Jesus says often is hard. It's difficult, and it it actually invokes from our flesh a response of, I don't know if I like him. I don't know if I like this, and I don't know if I like you. And this is the type of environment that Jesus raced into, knowing that he would be rejected by his hometown. And, and, and he, listen, Jesus, I love that Jesus, no matter what the question is, Jesus seems to address the heart each time. And there's no exception here in this passage. So the question is, if Jesus raced into contexts where there was no honor, there was no respect, but there was a potential harvest, there was obedience to the Father at, at, at risk here, what about us? What about us? I just think this is ironic that this is being stated, or, or Jesus is modeling this on the other side of what he said to his disciples in Samaria, and he said, the fields are white to harvest. And And go. John 4.45 goes on and says, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. What? Guys, does that not seem a little confusing to you, right? Verse 44, first he says, you know, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. You know, that, that, that's how this is going to go down. And it says, but when he comes, they welcome him. I want to use an illustration to kind of unpack this. Um, so um, I want you to... How many people have ever watched or have any idea what American Idol is all about? Okay, kind of a crazy title in the context of our culture, right? But but American Idol. So so these unassuming um, young men and women, maybe from these little small towns uh, all over our nation, little small town Alabama, Mississippi, wherever, all over the place, they come, they 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 sing their hearts out, and their hope is is that you know three judges are going to say you're. 
amazing. And, uh, and then they're on to accolades and, and celebrations. So, but we see it happen, and these, these kids that, that probably nobody in their senior class knows, um, you know, they're, they're nobody's in their hometown. But all of a sudden, when American Idol, uh, you know, happens, and they're, and they're given this accolade or opportunity, they come home, and everybody's their friend. We're going to have a parade we're going we're gonna to set up a stage so they can sing for us because, and, and you know, they're from my hometown, right? I, I know them. I didn't know them before, but, but now, now I know them, right? Right? There's this, and, and the truth is, and, and it, you hear this with folks, celebrities all the time that, you know, I don't know because of my money, because of my popularity, I really don't know who my true friends are because I, I can't see their hearts. Jesus could. And this passage goes on to really clarify that the reason they're welcoming him is not because of who he really is, but who they perceive or want him to be or what they want from him. So it says this. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. I mean, you can't read that passage and go, what? What happened to the rejection? What happened to, like, no one likes you in your hometown, right? Um, I, this might only speak to a certain demographic. It, it does to me. I'm, I'm in my 50s now. It's hard to believe. But, like, um, but here's the deal. Like, there was this cartoon that used to play, and it was this little frog, right? And he would be able to, at, at just moments and intervals, he would stand up and go, hello, my darling, hello, my darling, hello, my clam. Anybody, anybody ever seen that, right? Top hat, right, the stick, and he, this frog would dance, right? And he was like, do-do-do-do-do-do. And, uh, and this guy's like, and, and, and I think in the cartoon, I could be wrong here, I think in the cartoon it shows dollar signs coming out of his eyes, right? And so this guy's like, oh, this is great. You know, so he builds the stage, puts the frog on the stage, and he's like, I'm going to be a millionaire, right? And then all of a sudden, the lights come on, and the frog goes, what does he do? Ribbit. <laughs> and the guy is a fool, right? Because he... But why did the frog not do what the, guy, what the man wanted him to do? If you think about it. Because he only wanted him for what he could get out of him. Listen to what the verse goes on to say. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. What did he do at Jerusalem at the feast? Signs, wonders, miracles, right? And what were those signs and wonders? Okay, so let me unpack something real quick. You know, God has an intention for signs and wonders, right? John the Baptist comes to Jesus and says, hey, are you the one or should we expect another? What does Jesus point to? The signs, right? Um, So God has an intention for the signs and those signs are meant to be an attesting right? They're authenticating signs. They're meant to, like, they're all over the Old Testament. In fact, just so that we get it, there's over 300 of them, right? Throughout the prophetic teachings that lead up to Christ's ministry or mission. And, uh, and they are meant to point to Jesus to authenticate him as the one. But with everything that God does, the enemy has another agenda. You know, what, what, what you intended for evil, Genesis 50 talks about the brothers of, J, J, of Joseph, God intended for good. Same circumstance. 
Is there a potential that signs could have a very negative motivation in the hearts of people and that they might see him for what he can do for them rather than who he is? And is it possible that Jesus saw that and rejected that persona, that, that image that they were, man, we want to put... We want to put God in our context, don't we? We want, we want God to kind of operate in, in the manner and the way that, that really kind of satisfies our agenda. Let's go on. So it says, having seen what was done in Jerusalem at the feast, they too had gone to the feast. So now there's a shift. And that's why I use the, the example of the American Idol thing. Do you see it? There's a shift that happens here. They rejected him and now they're going, hey, homeboy's back. Good to see you. You're, you know, you're the guy. And their, their whole persona has changed. Jesus doesn't like it. Why? Why? See, so they welcomed him. Welcomed him home as their miracle worker. This is a kind of welcoming that Jesus is leery of. Sign seekers, power seekers, status seekers, those who are looking for personal benefit from him instead of believing in him for who he is. Does that make sense? Look at John chapter 2, 23 to 25. We, we preached on this. I preached on this a few weeks back. Same deal. Listen. And the funny thing is he's talking about the signs and the feast that he's referring to here. John 2, 23 to 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, he being Jesus, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So Jesus would be thrilled and excited, right? Nope. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And then the grace part of this is, and he came anyway. Do you see the patience of God, the mercy of God in this? Jesus is beckoning hearts to see him for who he is. All along, they're just trying to get something out of this. They're just going, whoa, if he can do that, maybe he could do this for me, rather than seeing him for who he is. And that's the faith, the saving faith that it's not, it's, we have to see him for who he declares him to be, not who we want him to be. Jesus seemed to not want anything to do with this false reality of him. Nothing to do with it. John 7, and I jump ahead here because it's, it's a perfect illustration. John 7, 3 through 5 says, So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples, your learners, your followers, also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he is seeking to be known openly. This is, the, this is, a, this is just the enemy speaking through unbelief in his brothers. And it goes on to say, If you do these things... If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Right? Think about it. Nicodemus comes to him at night. Why is he coming at night? Obviously, you know, it's not a bold move. He's doing this under the covering of darkness. Right? He comes at night, and he's saying, look, we know that you're from God. Nobody does what you're doing if it's not from God. But, but what's going on here? Right? And Jesus, what does he do? What is Jesus always doing? He's pointing them to the Father. And then he's saying, I, that's my daddy. That's what he just keeps saying. And they're saying, 
that's your daddy blasphemy. You're, you're saying you're equal with God. That you're, you know, like, and, and that's what he's doing. He's saying, I'm he. If you believe in me, he says, he says this, look, you, you, you love Moses? You claim that you love Moses and yet you follow the law? Do you know what all of that points to? Mm-hmm. And yet you're rejecting me? Please don't say that's true. That's what Jesus says. And his brothers make that statement in disbelief. Go put your show on for them, they say. Right? What is happening here is that there is no love or honor for Jesus. This is a love of self, power, and influence. They wanted to use Jesus rather than love him through obedience, because that's how it's declared that we love him, is through obeying him. Why? Because that's what you do with someone you declare as Lord. You do what he wants you to do. He's not this, I mean, do we treat him like some cosmic puppet? Some divine Santa Claus that, hey, you know, I, I need this. I need this. I need, you know, do your miracles. Guys, I want to tell you that's more of a byproduct than the primary perspective that we have. None of us likes to be used for who we are or what we have. He's no exception. They wanted to use Jesus rather than love him through obedience as Lord. Maybe you have the same misunderstanding. He's my miracle worker when I am sick or when I'm in trouble or when I need something or when I come to my own limits. Please don't misunderstand me. Jesus wants to be your shepherd. He wants, to be, he wants to be there for you and to care for you. He's powerfully and able to do all those things. But that, if that's all we see him as or want him for, do you see how shallow that is? And does that not confront the very reason that we follow him and declare him Lord? Do you want him for him, which is the great reward? Or do you want him for what he can do for you? It's abuse. John 4, 45. I repeat this verse because it, it, it's, it, it makes perfect sense. So when he came, when Jesus came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. They welcomed not him, but who they wanted him to be. Right? Are we guilty of the same agenda? Do you use people? Question. Do you use people? Do you give them honor and respect because of what they have or who they are or the office they hold? Or do you see people or see people for what they have or how they can benefit you or your life? James said it this way. He said, if someone, if you're going to invite someone to dinner, don't invite people who can invite you back. Invite people that you can't invite back. Why? Because it clarifies your motive. Jesus said this, you love those who love you? What credit is that to you if you love the people that love you? He says, even Gentiles and sinners do that. Love those who hate you. He says, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. What does it do? It clarifies our motives. Because you know what? Flesh doesn't do that. Right? Flesh doesn't do that. 
It's a witness to the world when we do things that are counter nature, right? When, when, when we are crushed by life circumstances and we rise in joy, that makes no sense to the world. And it becomes not only a catalyst for sanctification, but it becomes this glorious expression or witness to the world. And this is what God is doing. He's making us so that he can be made through us, right? Is that what Jesus did? That's the question. Did Jesus come to get anything from anyone? Did he come to, 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 to love you so that you could love him back? No, he came in radical obedience to the Father. You loving him back is, is just a natural response to the glorious thing that he's done for us. Obedience, I mean, to be obedient to him is a declaration of lordship. How we relate to Jesus is, 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 a, is an absolute statement of how we see him. And Jesus, think about it, he's looking at these hearts and he's going, no, 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 that's not who I am. I'm so much more. And, and, and later on in chapter 6, he says, look, I, I didn't come to, bring, to give you to be a king so that I could feed your bellies with bread. He goes, I came to be the, the nourishment to your soul, the bread of life. And he's like, and it's, it's grace that Jesus says, no, this isn't going to do because it, we're selling him short for who he is. And until we acknowledge him for who he is, we're never going to know the redemption of God personally and the Holy Spirit's presence and the power that it demonstrates through our lives. We're never going to light up for Jesus because we're not the light. He's the light. The Holy Spirit goes in us and lights us up, right? It's not even us. It's him. It's always him. And we've got to acknowledge him for who he says he is, not who we want him to be. And not what our selfish, you know, listen, we're, we have to be so aware, like we have to be willing to let the light of God, the light of Christ, the word of God light up our darkness and we need to confess it as sin that there are some times where I, I want my kingdom to come. That this is about me and, and that's got to go. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me, Jesus said. Verse 46 to 48 says, so he came again to Cana, again meaning from the time where he changed water to wine, it says that, and in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, now this is interesting, things just shift here very quickly as far as geography. Are, and so what's happening here, it, it says, so he's in Cana, right? He's gone through 60-mile walk from Sakar. He's gone through Nazareth. He's in Cana, and there's this, this centurion, potentially not even more than a centurion. He's an official to the king. That's literally what it means, that he is a king's associate or attendant. And there's only one king in the region. Who is it? Herod, right? So, so this is a very specific, like you, you would get this if you, if, if you understood like the, 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 uh, the, the culture of first century Palestine. And, uh, and what he's saying is that this guy is about 15 to 17 miles away, due east, a little north, right on the top part of the Sea of Galilee. And he hears that Jesus is now in Cana and he makes a track for Cana, okay? Now, this guy is a guy of political influence. He is the assistant to the king, right? This king is a joke by every stretch of the imagination. And so he has a lot of say, probably. And here he comes, obviously at his wit's end, and his child 
is dying. Can you put yourself in that moment for a second? He's desperate. His child is dying and he's looking outside of physicians. He's looking outside of his culture. He's looking outside of his power, his influence. And he's coming to this obscure at this point in the game, notorious, slightly infamous rabbi that's of a Jewish... Now, keep in mind, Jesus is breaking all social protocols here. I mean, he goes into Samaria and, and, he, and he speaks to a woman. You know, don't you see what's happening here? Jesus is laying the groundwork with what he's going what he, what to ask the church to do. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, you will be my witnesses in what? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Nicodemus, Samaria, the woman, right? And now a Roman official. He's laying the groundwork for the, the mission to the world. And here he says, you know, to, this guy comes and he's, he's traveled 15, 17. If you have a child, how long will you go? Where, where, to what extent will you? Do you care anymore about social prejudice? Do you care about all I care? I'll love you. I don't care who you are. Just help my kid. Right? It seems like people that really get it, that really exhibit faith, are ones that are in desperate places. And you wonder why God might, might author or allow or, or bring these desperate moments into our lives because does it not call faith out of us? What happens to this efficient, this, uh, this, this Roman official? He says, so he came uh, at the, he says, at Capernaum, excuse me, which is 15 to 17 miles, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he just heard. I mean, you don't pick up cell phones. There's not like GPS. I mean, this isn't an easy find. This is, you know, everything's word of mouth. Things don't happen in fast um, modes. He says he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. What did he ask him to do based on the text? Come to Capernaum, right? And heal my son. So whenever a man talks to God, what is it called? It's prayer, right? I mean, like, that's how Jesus sees it. Like, you're, you're asking me to do what I can do. Because later on, a, 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 dad, a dad says, if you can, talking about casting an evil spirit out of his son, and Jesus says to him what? If I can. Right? So what is his posture? He, he can do this. He knows he can do this. Right? And, and, and he's already postured to do this. And yet, let's, let's look at how Jesus responds to this. He's coming in desperation. He went to him and asked him to come down to Capernaum and heal his son. Now, this is a man that probably gets yes when he commands anybody in his, in his command, right? He gets, he's used to getting a lot of yeses. And much like the centurion that's servant, that's a different story, that he comes and asks Jesus, would you heal my servant? And Jesus says, you know, go. And he uses this terminology like, listen, I'm a man that, that has authority. I just tell them and it, it's done. And Jesus is like, I've never seen, that. he says, it, he marveled at his faith. I've never seen faith like, faith like this in Israel. So we're seeing these, these men of, of military uh, experience kind of understanding his authority, his power, right? And it says, for he was at the point of death, verse 48. So Jesus said to him, now, what would you, I, I know you probably already looked at the text. What, what would you expect Jesus to say? I mean, 
you know, Jesus is love. He's, com- he's filled with compassion. He's, a, he, he's the author of grace. What would you expect Jesus to say? Yes, of course, your poor son. What can I do? How can I serve? What do we expect the church to say when we come and we have these requests? I mean, you know, like, is this the response that we would expect? Listen to the response. This is Jesus' response. He says, unless you, and by the way, in the, in the Greek, that's plural. So basically what Jesus says is, unless y'all, right? He's using his, his native hillbilly here. He says, unless y'all, right? He speaks to the audience, which he does often, right? Guy, guy, guy comes to a crowded Jesus teaching and he says, just interrupts Jesus. No respect, right? Says, tell my brother to give me my share of the inheritance. Just interrupts him. And, and Jesus says, what business is mine? What business of this is mine? And then he starts speaking to the crowd. Teachable moment. Well, this is what Jesus is doing. He says, unless you, and now he's talking to the entire audience. And by the way, do you think that when a, a Roman official pulls up to a group of Jewish guys that they're going to be like, oh, look who's here, right? Do you think that the zealot in the room, Simon the zealot's not going to go, where's the closest rock? You know what I mean? Like you'd, I mean, we got to understand there's a lot of stuff going on here, right? And, um, and then Jesus says this. He says, unless you, all of you, y'all, see signs and wonders, y'all will never believe. He is making a blanket statement to the entire region, to the entire moment. And in the midst of that, he's speaking to a father that is, that is seriously concerned about his, his son's life. It seemed, on first reading, it seems a little bit lacking in compassion. No? Am I alone? So then you have to ask the question, right? Is Jesus compassionate? Absolutely. Is he loving? Absolutely. Is he the author of grace and life? Is, is his heart involved here? Is he commissioned to this? Does he not get moved? Does he not cry over Jerusalem? Does he not weep with Mary and Martha? I mean, like, is this an insensitive individual? Absolutely not. What is going on? And I want to say this. I think it's pretty clear. He's testing him. He's testing him. And, and, and let me say this as we move on. He will test you too. And many times I find that people will kind of deem God to be insensitive, mean. Like, I can't believe that you're not doing what I wanted you to do here. When God is, is calling out faith. You remember with the, with the, the woman, um, the, the, the Syrian woman, the Canaanite woman that comes and he says, she's, she's asking for healing. And, and Jesus says, you know, I'm here for the nation of Israel. I'm not here for the dogs. I'm not here for Gentiles, right? And she says, but just the scraps, right? And he says, oh, he marvels at her faith. It was a test. Listen, listen to what goes on here. I want to read this to you because I thought this was good from a footnote that I found. Um, listen to what this says. Some may become entranced with signs and wonders and fail to see that they point to Jesus and hence fail to believe in him. However, this does not mean that John's views of signs in and of themselves are negative. To the contrary, Jesus' miracles are 
one of the primary means God uses to bring people to faith in him. They often lead people to follow Jesus and place their faith in him as the Messiah. Here's the deal. God intends for these, these signs to point to Jesus so that they would acknowledge him as Christ, right? But oftentimes those signs become what we're pursuing rather than him. They get wrapped up in, in what he can do for them rather than who he is. And we, we, you know, that's so much a part of the Christian culture, even in our day, that sometimes we're going, well, well what's wrong with asking Jesus for, you know, a need? Nothing. He's capable. But is that your primary mode with him? Because I don't, I don't know. I mean, when people come to me and ask me for things, and, and, and I know that, that maybe they're just asking because of what I have, or not because... It's in the context of a loving relationship and it's a byproduct of just doing life together and because of our relationship. But they just, nobody wants to be wanted for what they have or what they can give you. It's, it's superficial. God wants more for this relationship. So why did they welcome him? Because they saw all that he had done in Jerusalem and at the feast. What did the disciples think or do when this official shows up? What do they think when the Samaritan woman is at the well and he's talking to her? Man, God is always breaking our paradigms. Verse 48, uh, as we look at that again, listen to what it says here. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Several points. That seems like a rough thing to say to a grieving father, right? Jesus is saying the kind of belief I experience here is one of a miracle worker. Who do you say that I am? That's what he's saying. Jesus is testing him. Does the official pass the test? Let's look. Verse 49, the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. This is what he asks. He, just, he, he doesn't even seem to get into a dialogue about that statement. He just says, come down before my child dies. The official doesn't seem to respond, right? He just states that. In verse 50, Jesus goes on to say, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. What is that? What is the statement that the man believed his word? Now, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, go and he will live. I mean, he didn't go down and lay hands on him. I mean, he just said it. And the man believed him and went. What is that a declaration of? That is a massive statement of faith that you're able to do that. You... You are who I have come to believe or look for. And, and keep in mind, his faith gr grows later in this experience because of the fruition of the promise that Jesus makes, right? But here's the interesting thing. He says to Jesus, what did, Je what did he ask Jesus to do? Come, right? Have you ever come to God and said, God, I want you to do this. I want you to do this. Come with me to Capernaum because my, my son is on death's bed. And what did Jesus say? Did he come? No, he's, he, he said, go. What do you do when God tells you to do something different than what you're asking of him? Do you believe for a moment that maybe his way is better? Do you, do you, can you resign your kingdom, your will, your desires to his because you've concluded that he's God and I'm not? Listen, listen, listen to these thoughts. Um, Jesus gives him his word. 
Can people count on your word? Aren't you grateful that Jesus' word is something we can bank our lives on? That we could put our stock, like we can live, we live because of Christ's promises. Every promise is made yes in Jesus. Like, and, and should we not be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children? Should we not be men and women of, of our word? But I love this. Jesus gave him his word, and this man, that was enough. Is God's word enough? Is God's word enough to live on? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do, do, I mean, is, is his way better? Or are we just wanting the miracle? Where, and the miracle is this, to do what I want you to do. What, what exalts me, what, 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 what sustains my kingdom. Maybe he's trying to bring that kingdom down so that his kingdom can come. Are you amazed, question, are you amazed at the power of Jesus? Because this guy was. He was amazed and he moved in, in, in a statement to that amazement. He spoke a word and that was enough. Jesus did this at a distance, by the way. Do we see that? At a distance. He believed Jesus' word. And that is what is asked of us. Do we believe Jesus is the word and do we believe him? Do we believe the word? Um, He had asked Jesus to come and Jesus said, go. And he went. What do you do when God changes the terms of your request? You ask him to come and he says, go. It's interesting that that's the beginning of the Great Commission, go. That is a good sign, right? Don't you think that that's a good sign that the the father just took off at that moment? He didn't try to drag Jesus. He didn't try to convince Jesus that, no, no, I need you to come with me. I mean, unless you come, you know, that's a good sign. He was not looking for the show. He trusted that Jesus' response is better than his request. And the question we have to ask is, what about me? And then the passage wraps up this way. And as he was going down, speaking of the father, the the official, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, everything's measured from 6 a.m. That's 1 p.m. So he had spent overnight going back home. And now in the morning, his servants come to him and says, yesterday at the seventh hour at one o'clock, the fever left him. Verse 53, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in a more significant way and all of his household as a byproduct. We see this among the Gentiles. We see this in Philippians with the jailer, right? He believes and then his whole family is baptized, right? Because that's the natural response of those that have been transformed by the living God is that they, they're, they're going to bring their family along. They're going to they're share the gospel with those that are intimate with them. Jesus' heal, healing was immediate at one o'clock the previous day. He believed not only Jesus' words, he believed in Jesus as the savior of the world, as those in Samaria said, as Messiah. And yet he didn't even have the benefit of the prophets. I believe that this official is a positive example to us of growing genuine faith. He passed the test. So the question has to be asked, why does God test us? Why does God test us? Well, I, I, as we wrap up, I want to read this passage 
because this is what my quiet time was on this week. Count it all joy. When? Let me just, for context purposes, say this. Like, this is the first letter, the first guidance that the church leaders give to the church in dispersia, the church that is in massive persecution. This is the first news, the first guidance, the first counsel that's given. And the first words after saying, hey, you know, I'm the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, James here, um, you know, to you, the 12 tribes in dispersia, um, count it all joy. What? That's what you're going to tell us as we're going through all this pain, trial, and adversity? You're going to tell us to be happy about it? No. He's saying, I want you to be more than happy. I want you to count it all joy, ESV says, or pure joy. But there's got to be a why to this or it doesn't make any sense. Why, why would we have that in the midst of this when my flesh says, I hate this, this hurts? Look, we got people that have lost loved ones this week like Miss Judy or sons like Miss, Miss Lori or, or moms like Joseph. I mean, like th- these are painful. See, we're, we're living in, in, in foreign territory. We're ambassadors of a dis- different kingdom on, on a battlefield. There's going to be casualties. But in the midst of this, does, does our God have a purpose for the pain? Yes. And it's glorious. And he wants us to believe it to such a degree that we actually are joyful in it. Why? Because that's when we become a great witness. That's when the world says, what? How can you, like Miss Lori, you, she's not here this morning, but I'm just telling you, every time I talk to her, and I know this, this woman is sincere for Jesus. She is like, I don't get it, but I'm, I'm joyful. I, I have peace. It's not something I forecasted what I would have in this moment, but God, is, God has given it to me right here, right now. You know why? Because he's with me. Guys, listen to what this says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And that's going on. It's painful. Listen, Nero is putting Christians in his garden on stakes and lighting them on fire. That's the kind of persecution they're facing. And he's saying, count it joy. And then he tells him why. Listen, for you know something or believe something. You are confident in this, this reality that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, perseverance, or endurance, however you translation reads, right? Like, look, God, like what, what, the, evil, what, 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 what the, the, the man intends for evil or what the enemy intends for evil here, God's got an agenda in it. That's glorious. And his agenda is he's going to make your pain have purpose. And that purpose is to make you look like me. Listen to what he goes on to say. For we know that the testing of our faith develops steadfastness here or produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Jesus is testing this official. He, he can look at his heart. But the problem is, guys, we don't know our own hearts. We have a lofty perspective on our own hearts or, our, or, or the degree of faith that we have. And so Jesus, God comes along through his spirit and through the circumstances of life and he gives us a, a reality check. Pop quiz, right? That's what happens in these moments. But it's really not pop quiz because God has declared that he's going to test us. And we're not, the ones, we're not the only ones alone in this. Look at the prophets. Every one of them that chose to be God's instrument, that God chose to be their, his instrument along the way, did they... Did they suffer? Did they go through painful experiences? Well, forget that. What about Jesus? <laughs> I mean, did he follow Jesus? Did he follow God's blueprint to perfection? And it says that he learned, he learned something. He learned obedience. I mean, he learned, he learned uh, 
obedience through suffering. It's what it says. Guys, it's telling us that, listen, here's the good news, guys. You're going to be tested. And why that's good news is because God is making you like himself through it. And he wants you to have this response, count it all joy. And he's saying that this is pure joy. This is, this is the greatest thing that's happening in your life. You're being tested. What? <laughs> like, what? It doesn't feel great, God. And so verse 5 goes on to say this. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously without finding fault to all who ask, and it will be given to them. Right? That's probably NIV. But listen to what this says. It says this. What is wisdom? Wisdom is applied knowledge or truth. Wisdom isn't truth. They're different. She is different than he. Okay? She's the helper of he. Right? Personified in the Old Testament, wisdom is a she. And what she does, wisdom helps truth come to fruition in our lives. How desperate are we for wisdom to count it joy when we're suffering? And here's what God says. I'll give it to you. I'll give you that wisdom that you're so desperate for to see that this has purpose, that your pain isn't a wasteful thing. I'll give you that perspective, but you got to ask me. And I'll give you that wisdom. But don't doubt. Listen to what it goes on to say. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach or finding fault, and it will be given to him. Verse 6, but don't let, don't, but don't, but let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Who's double-minded and unstable? Those that don't believe that God is the author of wisdom and that he gives generously to those who ask without finding fault. Guys, look, is God surprised by your trials? No. Is God testing you with them? Yes. And does God have a glorious agenda in it? Absolutely. And it's to make you... Listen, how does gold become refined and purified? Fire. And then what do we do? What, what's the stuff called that comes to the top? Dross. Where do we take the dross? We take the dross to the cross. Right? That's, that's what he wants us to do because what he's showing us, he's showing our faults, our failures. It's the mirror. It's the perfect law that we talked about in James chapter 2, verses 22 to 26. It's saying when we look into the perfect law, we see our... We see his perfection, but we see our imperfections. And what does he want us to do with those imperfections? He wants us to cast our cares on him. He wants us to confess our sins to him because he's faithful and just to, to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's some applications here. Hopefully you're ready to make your own, but here's some that were, were this week for me. What is the point? John is pointing to the deity of Jesus. He is uncompromising in that, in, in that approach. That's what he's doing. He's pointing to the deity. He starts it on verse, chapter 1, verse 1. He's pointing to the deity of Christ. It's the gospel of John's agenda. And why? Chapter 20 tells us why. So that you might see him and believe and be saved. That's why. Okay? And he says, and the second thing I see in here is how we often try to make him into what we want him to be rather than who he really is applications. Be ready to write some of these down. These were just, they were a blessing to me this week. There is something in us that does not give Jesus the honor he deserves. It's our flesh. It's our default, right? Sometimes we, we treat him with such familiarity that there's contempt in it. Yes, he's father. Yes, he's friend. 
Yes, he's brother. Yes, he's bridegroom. These are intimate relationship, relational connotations, but he's God, right? We have made him into a miracle worker. God, I need you to do this, and I want you to do this, and why aren't you doing this? And, and, and you know what he's promised to give us? I will be with you to the very end of the age. What's better than the fact that he has made it possible to be with us in it? And if we think that's the, the truth, then we look at the fiery furnace and we go, oh, yeah, there was like a man in there that looked like the son of God. He was with them in the fire, right? We have sold him short of his claim. Do we take him at his word? That's another question from the text. Do we just simply take him at his word and we lay aside our come and we go? Because that's what he's told us to do and he's Lord. Do we trust his word over our desires? Are we honoring him for who he is or who we want him to be? Do we have a prideful attachment to someone special? This is also in the text. He is my homeboy. It's, it could be an attachment to a church because that church is big. And man, I want to be associated with the big church. Or I want to be associated with, I go to the church with this pastor. Or I go to the church that sings this type of music. Really? That's what Jesus died for? It's a relationship with Jesus Christ, irrelevant of the, the social genres. That's not our, because that's all wrapped up in my, my kingdom. We want to be, and this, this doesn't end in high school, supposedly. We want to be in the popular group and with the famous crowd or person. We must check our motives, ask the hard questions. This is a recipe for disaster. So I have a question. Does knowing Jesus entitle us to anything or does knowing him change our title? In the Bahamas, we call our last name our title because that's what he's done. He's changed our name. He's given us his. Finally, we are too casual with Jesus, our homeboy. Familiarity breeds contempt. Let's not forget that. This is Mary's son. We know his brothers. It's just Jesus. Do we believe Jesus does miracles? Yes, he does. He believed it and he went expecting. Is Jesus a miracle worker? No, he's God, but he does miracles. So what is the point of the miracle? It authenticates Jesus, his word, so that we might believe in him and be saved. The danger is seeking the miracle instead of the Messiah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that is ours, afforded to us in this moment, to come to you in praise, in worship, to celebrate who you are, to give you the accolades and the glory that you are alone. Forgive us when we come to you for what we want so that you might make our kingdom come instead of yours and help us to die to ourselves, to lay down our lives, to, to, uh, to, be, uh, to see you for who you are. We're so desperate for your word, for us to just believe, to sincerely believe that you are who you declare yourself to be and can do what you have declared you've done and it is finished and that that's the glorious work of the cross. And uh, Father, we thank you that you still do miracles. We know we can ask you for these things, but the miracle that you have done in us is that you have taken the heart of stone, given us a heart of flesh and put your spirit and made us righteous. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.